From the Language App Babel, this is Multilinguish. I'm executive producer Jen Jordan. This week, we debate how many colors are actually in the rainbow. That is, we talk about linguistic relativity. As part of our research, we spoke with John McCorder, author of The Language Hoax, host of the fantastic podcast Lexicon Valley, and an all-around celebrity academic and linguist. Maybe a celebrity is a bit of a stretch, but he's definitely well-known. Later on in the episode, the whole team is back to share what they learned this week. First up, producers Thomas Moore Devlin and David Duchin bring us the Seeper Wharf debate. Let's get into it. And uh, today we're going to have a little bit of a debate, right? Yeah, friendly debate. Probably. It'll be a clean match. <laughs> yeah. I just know that Thomas has been talking about this Saper Wharf hypothesis since you were hired, I think. Yeah. I mean, can you explain like what it actually is? So the Saper Wharf hypothesis is like a few different things. The original idea up behind it was that there was this researcher named Benjamin Worf. He was a student of Edward Sapir, but Edward Sapir didn't contribute as much as Benjamin Worf to the origins. So wait, is this like a teacher versus student? Student becomes a teacher? No. Like Star Wars? Like <laughs> It's like teacher plants a seed and watches it grow into a beautiful and potentially wrong <laughs> tree, flowering plant, bush yeah. of some sort. There's right. also like this concept in science where pretty much every single naming of a theory or a hypothesis or anything is not the right name for which it should be. Like Pythagoras didn't invent the Pythagorean theorem. Fair enough. But that's neither here nor there. Oh, Benjamin Worf, scientist, linguist, he got really into language. He went and studied the Hopi people of... Arizona. Arizona, which were a Native American tribe living there. And he wanted to explore their language, and he studied it for a few years. He collected information, and he came to this conclusion, where I'll quote him exactly, where he said, The Hopi language is seen to contain no words, grammatical forms, constructions, or expressions that refer directly to what we call time. So imagine a language where time doesn't exist. Are you doing I it? I can't. Yeah, it's kind <laughs> of difficult. Can you tell by the blank expression on my face that that's not happening? Yeah, it's like hard, and so we kind of like argue that like these were a timeless people, and they just like always lived in the present or something like that. And from this, he made this idea that, oh, well, if your language doesn't have this, have a concept, then your perspective on the world is changed. And I think possibly more hip example would be in this movie Arrival, if. David, you want to talk about that? Yeah, I can touch on it. I have seen it once, but as a student of linguistics, it actually, uh, I, I took a great interest in it because it seemed to frame this hypothesis really well for the layperson who might not be really familiar with it. And I had sort of read a lot about, well, not sort of, I had read a lot about the, the hypothesis before seeing this movie, but not knowing that they would tie in. Um, I won't give anything away. I don't want to spoil anything. But the the plot of the movie is basically there's a linguist, uh, a language scientist, and she is tasked with trying to communicate with these aliens that just show up on Earth one day. And all the world's militaries are freaking out. No one knows what to do, how to talk to them, or what they want. Um, so it's, it's the, the job of this small team of linguists to try to communicate. And what they realize is that the the way these aliens talk or they don't really, they're not verbal or vocal, but they use these signs that they kind of like create out of ink. It's a, it has like a squid octopus type feel. Um, <laughs> really creepy, but you start to see these aliens get sort of humanized and you, you kind of empathize with them because it's clear they're trying to communicate something, but no one can figure it out. So there's all these scenes where, um, is it Amy Adams? It's Amy Adams. Yeah, I always confuse her with Emma Stone and with the other redheads of Hollywood. I confuse yeah. her with Rachel McAdams. Oh, who, that wasn't she sense. in Mean Girls? Wasn't she? Yes. Okay. She's Regina, Regina George. George. That's what I thought. This is this time it's Amy Adams. Although I think Rachel McAdams would have would have killed this role equally. <laughs> Amy Adams did a great job, but <laughs> this is taking me forever to explain. But the point is that. Um, the scientist, Amy Adams, when she's working with these aliens, they have a really unique concept of time such that they express sentences exp- or thoughts and expressions kind of in one go, and you have to kind of parse them 
apart from this one sign that they sort of like squirt out into it's a really <laughs> it sounds super gross and yeah. i can't explain it <laughs> but basically they learn like over the course of a couple weeks or maybe it's months amy adams character learns how to sort of like communicate with these aliens and read their language and she begins to sort of like adapt her worldview and her perspective to fit the way that they see the world which is not on a uh, finite continuum from start to finish it's kind of like these beings can transcend the boundaries of time and so when she begins to be able to to speak with them and communicate with them then she sees her world differently and the the whole narrative of the story kind of weaves that in as well like you're kind of following her from the beginning and then like things are out of place and you're not sure chronologically what's happening when but then it all kind of ties together in the end so i don't want to give away too much uh, but it's a really beautiful movie and so it gets you thinking is it possible if you start to adapt or acquire the language um, of another group that doesn't necessarily have the same way to interact with the world or, or interpret the world as you do are you going to start to to see the world in a different way is their way of thought going to have an effect on your way of thought communicated through language so it's sort of like the trippy like college conversation you'd have at 2 a.m. is like, what if the blue I see is not the blue you see? Exactly. Is that where we're exactly. going? That's where we're going yes. with this, yeah. And there's actually a really famous example. I think Thomas will probably bring it up. Yeah, blue will come back. Blue is important <laughs> in this whole thing. All right, we'll put a pin in that. But basically, when you talk about these grand claims about like this group of people not having a time, like Benjamin Worf was basically entirely disproven because there was another linguist, Eckhart Malotki, where he wrote an entire book called Hopi Time, and he showed how many different Hopi words and expressions use time, and it was basically like, I don't know what Benjamin Worf was doing in the, with this tribe, but like, he was wrong. And so for a long time, the whole concept was frowned on, and like, studying it was like, you're an idiot, like, this isn't true, all languages are the same. But more recently, in like, the later 20th century, and especially now, there's this thing called neo-Warfianism, which sounds like a Star Trek religion, but it's not. It's kind of the same concept where language can affect your thinking, but the claims tend to be a little bit smaller. For the purposes of this, can we call it A New Hope and continue the Star Wars theme instead of the Star Trek theme? No. We're going <laughs> to use all the sci-fi. <laughs> I mean, A New Hope does make sense in the whole story. I mean, what? I'm not going to go through and explain how all the episodes of this align. Someday. That's for yeah. the podcast. But I think the the name A New Hope is sort of appropriate because, so Benjamin Worf comes out with this sort of, like, groundbreaking theory that rattles all of what we know about linguistics. And then you have other linguists who come back and say, well, maybe that's not exactly right. Like, this is... people. You mentioned Eckhart Molotki. I think I'm saying his name right. He, his 600-page counterargument was basically boiled down to um, Worf's hypothesis is a load of baloney, and here's why. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that now with the movement of neo-Worfianism, there's a little bit of leeway and room for what's I've read is called the weak hypothesis, which is basically that language doesn't necessarily shape thought, but there are ways and uh, there are correlations between the two, and. I really want to hear, I'm, I really want to start this debate so we can kind of get down to the meat of the issue and, and sort of beef up our arguments and get, and get talking and get thinking. Because I don't necessarily know what the correct answer is, how much weight the hypothesis holds, but I'm more inclined to think that it is kind of a load of baloney, that language doesn't shape thought in the ways that Benjamin Worf had originally proposed. And I want to see what you have to say about it. Yeah, I kind of come down the side that Definitely Benjamin Worf made a lot of big claims that were not fantastic. But it does seem like there is measurable difference depending on the language you have. And the main thing is that usually when this stuff comes out in the media, it ends up that people talk about Saper Worf and they talk about like these grand things and they're like, here's why speaking a different language makes you better at tying your shoes. Which doesn't make as much sense. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> So I think the best way to go about this is we're going to go through three different grand claims that are being made in relation to Saper Wharf, and then kind of debate what the evidence actually tells us about them. I know that neo-Wharfianism isn't actually a new hope. It's new hopey. 
Oh no. That was anyway. Cut that out. No, we need to we need to publicly humiliate Jeff. Yeah. I've been holding on to that. I mean for the last like two rounds of conversation. Is it out of your system now? <laughs> it's out of my system. <laughs> okay. Let's let's hit the three let's points. Begin. Let's hear them. Alright, we're gonna start with financial planning. The most exciting place to start. It's my jam. That's how I spend yeah. my Saturday nights. What so financial planning, the idea behind this was there was this Yale economist, Keith Chen, and he did a study of a bunch of languages and tried to find this correlation that does the language you speak correspond to how well you are for planning for the future? And he specifically focused on like money. So his basic hypothesis was that languages that have a future marker which English does have, when you say, I will go to the market, the will is a future marker. Mm -hmm. He hypothesizes that that will make you worse at planning for the future, which seems counterintuitive, but that is the hypothesis, because people who don't are just like more linked to time. It comes down to time a lot with, say, pro-wharf, interestingly. Hmm. And so in the study, he did study, and then like languages like Chinese don't have the future marker, and so they'll have more GDP. And so he made this big graph and he showed like the GDP of these countries to show like certain countries, the ones that use a language that doesn't have a future marker are better at saving, if that makes sense. So we did this by, by GDP, not actually by like personal savings trends. Yeah, just like a more general, because okay. I guess that's probably easier to get overall, especially because people are gonna vary so much. Mm-hmm. So, it does look from his study, and he's done a TED Talk. A lot of people who talk about Safe Wharf have done TED Talks at this point. I don't know what it means, but... <laughs> <don't like> talk. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have another TED Talk mentioned later on. But this was Keith Chen's hypothesis, that, and it does seem backed up by the evidence. Okay, so that I have a lot of points of rebuttal, um, and I don't even know how to sort them out to where to begin okay so let's start here so let's assume that because this is not my own example i didn't come up with this but i read this somewhere and it really it struck me so france has one of the highest gdps in the world really large economy um part of the eu and they speak french there that is i guess it doesn't matter that they're part of the eu but they have a, a really high gdp um and they speak french there that is the language of france so you could make the argument, if you follow your line of logic, or not your line, Thomas, but um, Keith Chen's line of logic, that because they speak Fran- because they speak French in France, they are better at economic planning, they're better at building for the future, or whatever inherent quality about French it is that gives them the ability to really just amass a lot of capital and, and build on it, all that good stuff. But then you look at a country like Haiti, which is... A Caribbean island also speaks French for the most part and their GDP is one of the lowest in the world I think I read that it's 138th or somewhere around there so where is the disconnect why is it that one nation that speaks French um, in the Caribbean has such a low GDP compared to another nation that speaks the same language so you're talking about like an apples to apples comparison about the language that they're speaking and why would that be so different right and if you want to hold that variable constant because it is, um, I don't think the dialects of French spoken in Haiti and uh, France are so much different that they're considered different languages. So let's consider them the same for now. Then you have to assume that there's some other factor in there that's contributing to why uh, these two nations have such different GDPs and economic standings in the world. And if you assume that, then you're saying that the language isn't inherently the only factor behind the thought um, and the actions and the motivations of the people who speak that language, that there's something else at play, um, whether it's environmental factors or cultural factors, um, the ways that the different societies work that are not explicitly tied to language that are affecting these outcomes. Does that make sense? That's interesting, but I feel like you're applying like a correlation causation thing, whereas he's using like an illustrative way to show that these cultures are probably good at saving because of the way they approach money. You're approaching it that if you speak this language, you have to have a high GDP. Yeah, but if your argument is that these cultures are good at saving because of the way they approach money, isn't that a cultural condition and not a linguistic one? 
Because you're saying that X culture is good at saving money because it's good at saving money. But if you don't have a lot of money to save in the first place, <laughs> you're not going to be able to That's true. It. That is true. Well, it's percent of GDP that was being measured. So, I mean, it could go either way. Okay. I mean, well, that's interesting. Yeah. And I'm willing to admit also, like, Keith Chen's study was a little bit debunked later on. And I'll mention John McWhorter for the first time because he'll come up a few times. Because John McWhorter is a linguist who's very against the Saber-Whorf hypothesis, and even the weaker hypothesis he's not into. And he points out that some of the languages that Keith Chen labeled as not having this future tense actually did, or the other way around. And so if you actually look at a more accurate layout, then it like, doesn't correlate. All right. So you also mentioned it's like not that intuitive that languages that have a, a verb or a way to express future, um, like will in English, that sort of tense, are probably more inclined to be better at planning. And I don't necessarily follow that logic, but even taking a step back, I want to say that I can't imagine a situation in which a person just doesn't have the thought capacity to be able to plan for the future. Like, imagine when we are, if we were hunter-gatherers and we needed to to go out and collect or forage for our tribe, how do we know, we can't just wait until the very last minute when we run out of food and then it kicks in, we have the thought that, oh, it's time to go collect or forage or hunt or whatever. We have to be able to, to make advanced plans to know uh, what's going to happen in the future, even if it hasn't happened yet, and then be able to account for that. And I, I really don't think I can picture any situation in which some group of people is just inherently better at planning because their language dictates that it must be so. I feel like that's just a recipe for disaster. If you can't, if you can't look at the future and picture the future and what will come, and then be able to respond in the present to try to prepare for that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just because you're not expressing it, and then obviously, like, we're looking at this coming from the perspective of one native speaker looking at another language, so um, just because the way you understand expressing the future or thinking about the future in one language isn't equivalent to yours doesn't mean they're not thinking about it, because I think, like, you would have to look more broadly at human nature and, like, how we've ex existed up to this point. Like, yeah, we have more than just like the present moment that's sort of under consideration, like consciousness. So I, I, I would buy that. I mean, I think that's, I think that's definitely a stretch to say that like they don't think at all about the future they do and because of the language they speak. Think yeah. about David's side so far. Okay. Chalk one up for David. <laughs> point one, David. So we'll go on to grammatical gender and the brain. We love talking about grammatical yeah. gender here. Uh, so the briefest definition of grammatical gender, we'll ignore pronouns and stuff, but for nouns specifically, English doesn't have this, other languages do, where a noun will be male, female, neuter, or something. In French, this table is feminine. Yes. I learned that well, also, in middle school, but also again this morning <laughs> on Babel. It's also feminine in Spanish, and that's all I know off the top of my head. Huh. Uh, it's German. German, it's masculine. It's, um, Der Tafel, I think. It should mm. just be feminine or masculine. All the languages should agree. <laughs> that makes my life so difficult. Yeah, that is so difficult. And it's so arbitrary. Because when you think of gender, you think of traditional male-female dichotomies. And then German kind of mucks it up because you throw in neuter. And like, what, how, what is neuter? How do you classify something as neuter? But we, like, we as English speakers do have a conception for male and female. And it shows up in people and sometimes animals but for the most part we don't really refer to objects as male or female but why in german then this is the point you're about to to bring up um why in german do, do some words that are masculine appear as feminine in another language for example um and i forgot what the, the bigger point i was going to make as an intro <laughs> it was really good and I think Thomas was making a yeah. point, and then we interrupted him <laughs> to talk about this for a while. Oh, but the point I was going to make is that I think gender should kind of be technically viewed as type or classification, um, because the word gender, I think, especially today, is kind of loaded with this sort of male-female iconography and symbolism behind it. Um, so if you think about gender as type, I think that that can help us sort of lay a groundwork for what we're about to discuss and how people, if you don't think about, um, I'll just stop there. Yeah. 
Well, I will say, even English speakers do gender some objects, like ships. We call she, and it's weird. Nations, we call them she. Yeah, I guess that's mainly... I can't think of any examples of, like, objects that we call he, specifically. Yeah, I can't think of, like, a big example that everybody uses. Yeah. I'm sure we'll think of it after we're done recording. Yeah, we'll (laughs) come back. But the type thing is, like, a good way to think of it, because... It is kind of arbitrary. Why is a table female or male? Why is anything anything? And the prevailing notion was that, like, it's, it is arbitrary. They were just made up because certain languages force you to think in gender. This is actually a different name of a hypothesis that um, some people prefer to Sapir Whorf because it's slightly less. I need to find the name of it. One moment. So, it's Franz Boas and Roman Jakobsen created the Boas-Jakobsen principle. And so it's, instead of thinking about what a language, like, what do languages have the ability to produce, it's what do languages force you to produce when you're speaking. So in Spanish, when you say a noun, you have to give it a gender. Like, you can't just be like, el mis, I can't even, if your race like the gender from La Mesa, it'd be like miss, and then you wouldn't have it though. So if you think about it this way, and it's like, does that matter though in how you're thinking? And at least one study says that it does. One study which was done by Leo Boditsky and Lauren Schmidt, there's also a TED talk on this topic. And they wanted to see if the genders that we assign to these things actually affect the way that we think of the objects. So one example that they used was the word bridge, in German, it's die Brücke, which is feminine, and in Spanish, it's el puente. And they asked Spanish speakers and German speakers to describe a bridge and see what kind of words they used. And it did happen that Spanish speakers tended to use strong masculine skewed adjectives, like the bridge is dangerous and strong and, I don't know, husky. <laughs> and Germans used more feminine skewed adjectives like slender and beautiful to describe this bridge. And this was the same bridge, I'm assuming. Same I don't know if they actually looked at a bridge. I think, well, maybe. Maybe they have to like, describe bridges. <laughs> okay, interesting. But it's the same concept, and it just is interesting that the adjectives went different ways. Okay, Thomas, so I want to make sure I'm understanding this. So your point of view that you're presenting is that because there is grammatical gender in many languages, that affects how we describe or think about certain objects. Yeah. David, do you agree? I don't. So I am inclined to think that grammatical gender is arbitrary and that's all that it ever will be, that it's not going to have a huge weight on the way that we interpret the world, Um, mostly because... So one, I mean, if you think about languages that have gender, whether it's male-female, male-female-neuter, like German, um, are they more inclined to see objects, people, ideas, whatever, as inherently more masculine or more feminine because they're assigned to gender? So that, I mean, that's the question we're asking at hand, I recognize. Um, Then you can ask yourself, well, how would that play out other than people just, just describing a bridge as with feminine qualities or masculine qualities, would it actually affect the way that they live their lives? So I'm, my question is, do languages that have gender make the people who speak those languages inherently more sexist or more inclined to ascribe to certain gender roles? If you have the idea that a table is always feminine in Spanish, does that mean that a, that a table can never have masculine qualities? Or extrapolating, does that mean that men and women can only have certain roles because they're assigned like okay so think about clothing for example a lot of clothing for women in spanish has uh, a feminine gender like la blusa blouse is feminine or um maybe this isn't the best example los pantalones Los pantalones are masculine. So is a man inherently more driven to wear pants because it's masculine? Or is that just, like... 
I don't know. I think your argument is kind of falling apart here. Yeah, no, my argument is falling think, apart I think here. Thomas gets this one. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's just difficult to, I, I think it's just difficult to make your point, like, without doing a lot more studies. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the main issue with this, which I will acknowledge, not to defeat my own point, but, like, this is not as measurable, like, and it is, like, will a Spanish man want to take a bridge more because it's a masculine bridge and it's El Puente and it's strong? Like, does that affect it? And we just don't really know if that's going to make any difference in the way you live day to day. We'll move on to the third one because it's the most measurable and it has to do with color. Yay, color. So colors come up, I think, the most of any topic with Sapir Wharf because, like I just mentioned, it's the most measurable result that people have found and they keep doing studies on a very specific phenomenon. So, how many colors are in the rainbow? Six, right? In English, yes. Or seven, indigo. Generally, you just do red, orange, yellow, green, blue, purple, and that's like the six colors, the six basic colors we have. But in Russian, they have more. Specifically, they have two blues. So well, we have red and pink in English, and like, there's really no reason that we call it pink instead of light red, but we do. And Russian has chini and kolovoy. I've never taken Russian, so let's just assume that that's accurate. <laughs> that's close, I think. Um, and so it just describes two different shades of blue. Envision in your mind. Top of screen, there's a square of one shade of blue, and then there's two smaller shades of blue below it. And you had to choose which shade masked the square at the top. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So matching game. The further, the more difference there is between the two options that you have, the quicker you're going to be able to answer like which shade it is because your brain can just more easily be like, oh, that one's very different from this, so you just click that one. And the result that was found that is really like important is that when the two shades of blue below kind of crossed this threshold between Genie and Gulaboy, the Russians were slightly faster than English speakers at choosing which color matched the top color. Okay. Yeah. So what this proves, quote-unquote proves, is that because Russians from childhood up are taught there are two different blues, their brain are slightly faster at processing when shades of blue are different. That sounds very minor as I say it aloud now, <laughs> but the fact that there is an observable difference just shows that at some level, this blue, the way that we categorize things with language does affect our thinking. It sounds like something that happens in the Matrix when they're trading Neo <laughs> and how to see different <laughs> shades of blue <laughs> and he becomes adept at seeing like, I don't know, it could be like the next like Matrix. We're going through every <laughs> sci-fi movie, which is great because it does kind of feel sci-fi-ish, this whole thing. It does. So it sounds like you have some fairly decent evidence that this is the case. Yeah, I mean, multiple studies have been done at this point. There's one very recently, and it's just like, from this, neo-Warfians say, case closed, we have these results, they're reproducible, language affects how we think. And I, I'll wait for the rebuttal. Let me gather my thoughts. <laughs> okay, so I guess my question at hand, keep saying at hand, but this is a podcast, so maybe you can't see my hands. Maybe. Um, maybe. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's up to the audience to decide. So, I kind of think of like a chicken and the egg argument. Do we have six terms for colors of the rainbow in English because we can only interpret six colors of the rainbow? Or do we only... Are we only trained to interpret six colors of the rainbow, give or take a few, because we only have six words? So, I mean, that's the, the question about this entire debate. Does language affect thought, or does thought affect language? Part of me thinks that, yeah, sure, Russian speakers can identify different shades of blue, and that might be because they have different words for them, but that doesn't seem like a, a totally linguistic phenomenon. It just seems like Russians have, for generations, taught their children how to distinguish between shades of blue and we haven't and so there's just more like russians have more practice or more experience identifying different shades of blue because and it doesn't matter what the names are for them 
It's just the fact that they do have, I guess, I mean, okay, if I say it's the fact that they have different names that kind of plays into <laughs> your hand a little bit. Yeah, I um, feel like your argument is like Russians have practiced since birth telling <laughs> the color blue. Okay, well, okay, so if you remove language from it completely, and let's just say that you train um, someone like Neo in the Matrix by pointing out two different shades of blue, if you just expose them enough to two different shades of blue, where once they didn't know how to distinguish between them, after a certain amount of time, whether or not you speak to them or give them different names or words for these shades of blue, that person's probably gonna be able to distinguish between them eventually. Just like if I met two people, like two identical twins, for example, who look the same, obviously, because they're identical, I won't be able to tell them apart at first, but with enough training of my eye, I'll be able to do that because it has to do with the way that I'm absorbing and collecting information, but not necessarily linguistically. And like those two twins, I just thought of this example and I'm really proud of it. So if those two twins have different names, yes, they're different shades of the same genetics or the same DNA, um, but just the fact that they have different names doesn't inherently, that's not what makes them different. It's the fact that they are different and over time you just learn how to, to pick them apart and separate them. So if Russian children, are given from birth two shades of blue to look at and interact with, then yeah, of course it's possible that they're gonna be able to, to click one square of one shade faster on a computer. But does that mean that it's because of their language that's doing that? So you're saying it's from like a science perspective, it's not the name, it's the observable characteristics of the person or of the color that Russians are able to identify, not because they've been taught early on yeah. that there's two different words for it. Um, also, another example that I can talk about while you're researching is the Eskimo word for snow. This is probably the most often cited and most often debunked, but still really popular myth around Sapir Whorf, that the Eskimo people um, who speak Inuit have 30 plus different words for snow, whereas we who speak English have maybe three or four at most. We say snow, we say sleet, hail, slush, but other than that, we don't really distinguish among the types. But for the Eskimo people who live surrounded by snow every day, they have so many different terms because some of it's powdery snow, some of it's really icy snow. And so because they interact with snow so often, they've just become attuned to, or the idea, the myth, um, that has now been debunked is that the Inuit language has so many different words for snow and therefore it shapes the Eskimo people's ability to pick out the different types. Uh, but that kind of seems just like this Russian blue example where sure, if you grow up around snow all the time, you're just gonna be more intimately familiar with what the different types of snow are. And maybe that's why your language was shaped in the, in the image of so much snow um, to reflect the reality of the, of the place that you live and the environment you live in, but your language doesn't, doesn't inherently affect how you see the snow itself. It's just the fact that you have so much exposure and observance of the snow that you are able to pick it out. And then following from that logic, that's why you get so many words for it. It's because you, you have already gone through the process of categorizing it in your mind um, with your thoughts before language was ever applied to it. That makes see, the Eskimo example makes a lot of sense to me because it's a condition they're living in or an environment where they have to have words to describe it. That doesn't describe the Russian two blues example because are there instances where Russians are exposed to that much color that they're like, holy cow, we need other words to describe this? So much so that it's like a commonly, like you're commonly taught in school the six colors of the rainbow. All the graphics you have in classrooms, everything has those six colors, You're, you teach those. That's what kids learn. Why is it in Russia, it's just a given that there are two different blues, a light blue and a dark blue. That's what, I guess, where that is sort of a not totally equivalent. It's an interesting contrast to bring up, but I, I wonder like why that is the case in Russia. And maybe that's something we can research another time. Thomas, is there anything else you wanted to add or should we move on? So, John McWhorter's main argument against the blues is that he's, I mean, he can concede, like, yes, this study does show this. And maybe, maybe language can affect how quickly you click a color on a screen by a few milliseconds. But his main argument against it is not so much based in, like, well, that's, and like, what does that do? Like, blues, you can click blues faster. That 
is not going to affect anyone's life at any point. And he has the larger problem that he has with the Sapir Whorf hypothesis and even Neo Whorfianism is that when these headlines come up and are like, why Chinese people are better at saving for the future, it kind of is a little discriminatory because every time you say that one group of people is better at something, it says that another group of people is worse at something. And like going back to the Hopi people, like it was just kind of like this exoticizing of this Native American tribe and like, look, they don't understand time. What a wild group of people. Yeah, you're extrapolating maybe one small aspect of their culture to extend to an entire culture or nation of people which we try not to do but sometimes like we definitely read a lot about that yeah so a lot of what this can can come down to is i mean basically racism we actually one of our colleagues at babel spoke to john mcwhorter and talked a little bit about sapir wharf so i will play that clip what i worry about is the idea that if you are an italian have a different perspective on the world than a person who is Japanese mm. because of how the verbs and the nouns work. That's the problem that I yeah. have because I think there's very little evidence that that's true. And I think that it is condescending, for one thing, because where a lot of that goes is, oh, wow, that indigenous person is sensitive to you know, sources of information. That indigenous person is sensitive to these shades of existence where really none of us are that impressed that the person is cognitively human, just as we are. There's kind of a pat on the head involved in all of it. Mm. And then also it's dangerous because some languages are just more telegraphic than others. And if you're gonna say that all of the detailed shades of distinction in an indigenous language make them more sophisticated mentally than a boring English speaker in Cleveland, then unfortunately you're also saying that everybody who speaks Chinese is kind of stupid. Because mm-hmm. Chinese is a language that actually doesn't make a lot of those sorts of differentiations on yeah. an indigenous language might. So I think that Sapir Wharf, it's attractive to many people, I think partly because it's a way for a Westerner to indicate that we understand that other people are cognitively advanced. It's understandable. But there's an insult that you risk in it, because not all languages lend themselves as well to paying that compliment as we think. So that's what my book, The Language Hoax, was about. And that does make sense. I mean, we have, every time you say that something is better than another thing, you risk the insult. And like, especially when the main result that we get to prove any of Sacred Wharf is like, oh, Russians can click a blue faster, then these grand claims that eventually get filtered down into media as being like bigger claims, because that's generally what happens when scientific studies reach, the, no offense to the media, we are the media. We love of. the media. We do. Yeah. But when these things get inflated based on like a single study, it can kind of just bolster this idea. And then it gets to the point where it's just you're like, oh, people who speak a different language think differently. They're different. And you can justify like, oh, they're different because they speak this other language. They're not the same. They think differently. And thus... Even if you're not actively making a judgment of whether that's better or worse, it does kind of push away a different group of people. It also sets you up for the idea that to understand a different group of people, you have to go out of your way to learn their language and that there's nothing else about the human condition that you can relate on because they're so far removed from you or they just have such different thought patterns that it's not even worth it to try to get to know them or understand them. And maybe maybe Sapir Whorf has a lot of weight the heavy, the strong version of that hypothesis, if we take it to be true, sure, people think so differently because language shapes the way they think. But that just means that, that people can probably use that as an excuse to retreat back into their own xenophobia, perhaps, or their unwillingness to, to learn a new language, to try to understand a new culture. And I think that that is where you, you risk running into some of those major obstacles and um, and categorizing people, generalizing about them, stereotyping them, because you see it as really hard to try to understand them. So, Jen, where do you come down at the end of this debate? Do I have to choose a winner? Yeah, and you need a gavel, too. Yeah, and you're going to kill the person who lost, so um, where's the sword? (laughs) I feel like I just got a linguistics degree. (laughs) Is this what it feels like to study linguistics? Absolutely. That was four years boiled down to 
That's oh all I for you. You just sit in your dorm room, and then you're like, but what if other languages are different? <laughs> Um, I think there were some really interesting points. I think, I think you brought up some interesting food for thought, Thomas. And I think David, you had some very, um, very accurate counterexamples that I, I felt like I could relate to some of them. I think um, I don't know if I totally believe in Savior Wharf, but Damn. I do think I that doesn't <laughs> mean that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't mean you win. Stop dabbing. <laughs> that doesn't mean David wins by default. I think there. I think Savior Wharf, like most hypotheses is, are flawed um, and I think that it's interesting to think about but not something I would take just at face value. Multilanguage is brought to you by Babbel, the language app. Speak a new language with confidence. Lessons are lovingly created by over a hundred language experts, real people, not by a translation machine. Hey David, what's your favorite lesson in Babbel? I had a lot of fun with one that I did just yesterday, actually. It relates to clothing and colors. And I think that's a really cool way to combine material. Instead of just giving me a list of colors to memorize or a list of clothing items, it's having me put them together in context so I can talk about me wanting to put on um, a pair of dirty pants or my friend, <laughs> like, stopping me from doing that, but she wants to know where her red dress is. That's cool, that actually sounds pretty useful. So we're offering multilingual listeners 50% off a three-month subscription. New customers can get this offer by visiting babbel.com slash podcast. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash podcast. All right, everyone, let's talk about what we learned this week. David, I nominate you to start. Uh, what I learned this week that actually really struck me was in writing my article about South Africa and what languages are spoken there, I knew that there were 11 languages that are guaranteed uh, protection under the Constitution as official languages, nine of which are called Bantu languages. So they're um, descended from the native, or they are the native African languages that were on the continent before the Dutch settlers and the English settlers came. Um, so there's a whole storied history about um, the, the fight between the Afrikaners who spoke Afrikaans, who are largely white, but were kind of trying to protect their identity against the uh, approaching or the encroaching English who brought English with them. Um, all of this to say that today, English is only spoken by about 10% of the population natively. But from my own experience living in South Africa, I thought it would have been 60 or 70%. Like most of the people that I run into or have run into there speak English. Um, and to think of English as like a global phenomenon in this world language, I think South Africa is a perfect example of where that kind of takes root and um, you can see it really clearly because as Afrikaans is associated with sort of white nationalism that kind of drove the Afrikaner movement that ultimately led to apartheid, there have been a lot of movements to kind of like reduce the effect of Afrikaans um, in society as a whole and bolster the status of other languages, like the native African ones, but English too. Um, and so you can really see, even though 90% of the population of South Africa doesn't speak English natively, most people know it because it's just so, like, it, it's so popular and it's a really, uh, it's an alternative to speaking Afrikaans, which has such a, um, a storied history that's tied up with apartheid and, and discrimination and oppression. Interesting. interesting. Very cool. Not how long, fun. <laughs> not fun, but interesting. And how long were you in South Africa for? For one semester. Um, so a few months. So a few months, and then I went back for two weeks last year. Awesome. Yeah. Steph, what did you learn this week? Um, well, in the process of putting together some suggestions for people, um, so the whole premise of this article was like, we're all really busy. Sometimes even 20 minutes a day is too much to ask um, for maintaining a consistent language learning habit. Um, and so the whole idea was to break it down into chunks. So if you have one minute, here's what you could still accomplish. If you have five minutes, like here's what you can oh still God, accomplish. I and I never, um, I guess because we, we so often, you know, we sort of promote this idea that like a Babel lesson takes 15 minutes a day and that's all you really need. Um, but it kind of really drove home the idea that like, even if you're not doing a whole lesson, you can still keep the momentum going in your practice. Um, and that was kind of enlightening for me to think about in that way, because, um, 
you know, say you have like 10 minutes and like maybe you can't do a full Babel lesson, but you can still like learn seven new vocabulary words because that is like the scientifically proven amount of like new information that your brain can digest at a time. Wait, what's or the scientifically? Seven new pieces of information. Interesting. Yeah. So and then, like um, the short term memory thing? Yeah. Mm. Um, or you could, you know, watch a YouTube video or, you know, just something. Um, even like if you have like one minute you could still blow through a stack of flashcards and just review things that you already learned. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote extensive notes for myself. So um, we just booked our travel for Berlin. Well, most of us mm -hmm. have, David. <laughs> <laughs> Publicly shaming you now. Um, and I'm spending, I'm traveling solo to Paris. I haven't been there in oh, 10 years. Yeah, I'm actually really excited about going alone because I haven't been in 10 years. And French is the language I studied in middle school and high school. So it's like, even though I'm not good at it, it has the most familiarity, I guess, sort of ingrained. Like, I've heard more of it. I've spent more time, like, studying the grammatical parts of it and kind of understanding it. So I'm brushing up on French in Babel now. That's, like, my sole focus. Um, and I've been reading about how to get better at French from our friends in didactics and linguistics in Berlin. So an article I read this week is um, talking about the hardest parts of learning French and the easiest parts of learning French. And the easiest, the good news is 45% of words in English actually come from French, which is oh, wow. crazy high, actually. Yeah. Um, it's like 80,000 words are shared, like have like a root that's shared because that is so much more than I thought. So it's so yeah. much more. Yeah. I mean, they said 80,000. I don't know how they're counting how many words are in the English yeah. language. It seems like a tricky business. But um, they're saying 45% because obviously they're both Latin languages, but also there's a lot of shared history when you're talking about, like, even the word culture itself comes from French. <laughs> but you're talking about, like, economics and politics and culture and art. All of those words are essentially, in a lot of ways, come from French. So um, there's a lot of words that I know already, which is great. Um, the hardest part is obviously pronunciation. Um, French yeah, people yes. are notoriously difficult. <laughs> and basically my strategy is whenever I'm ordering something or getting around is just to mumble the ending so I never have to learn how to conjugate anything. <laughs> and I can hopefully be understood if I just intonate correctly. Right. Thomas, what did you learn this week? So I did a bunch of BB Little stories on uh, colors, color Baby? words. Yeah, little babies. Little. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that out loud. BB. <laughs> Text speak IRL. Anyway, so basically where words that we have for colors come from. And, like, some of them are boring because, like, they've just been around so long. But, like, they've done studies that, like, cultures develop different color words over time. Like, black, white, and red are, like, the first color words that they get. So, like, those all go back to Proto-Indo-European. But some go wait, wait, why are they the first words that we have? Uh, just because that's how it happens. Because, like, your first distinction <laughs> is just, like... Oh. It starts out like a Teletubby show where you're just, like, <laughs> consciousness. Like, the first yeah. distinctions you're going to make is, like, between light and dark. Mm -hmm. And so, like, and okay. then the next thing is just your brain hooks on to red. Mm -hmm. And then, like, so those came very early. But, like, other colors that we think of just, like, as intrinsic to our language just coming, like, later on. Like orange like which thing came first the fruit or the mm. color obviously the fruit well you, you, you got it <laughs> i mean right like why else would you need to describe yeah this is orange except for babble yeah, <laughs> except for thomas. the most important <laughs> except for thomas. i know and like but like he's a redhead yeah well the reason why they're called redheads is because the red word came around first mm. Anyway. Well, Dylan, what did you learn this week? Um, all right. So we're going to take a little turn. Um, <laughs> so I looked into crystals. Finally, somebody yes. researched this. Jen has so been happy. asking for this forever. And uh, so here we are. Nobody cares about crystals anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. Um, so basically looked into like healing crystals and whether they can help with language learning in any way. Um, and the short answer is... If you believe in crystals, <laughs> they can help with anything because scientists believe that they're largely, a, they have a placebo effect. So basically, if you believe that they're helping you, then they can actually be beneficial. Um, so there are crystals that are said to be better for certain things like memory, focus, communication, all things that can relate to language learning. 
Um, so I went to a local crystal shop here in New York City called Rockstar Crystals, and I spoke with the assistant manager, who gave his name as Emerald, which is <laughs> definitely his real name. <laughs> and he recommended a few specific crystals, um, including clear quartz, and which is really good for clearing bad thoughts, storing memories, and purifying the aura. That seems convenient given it's a clear rock. Yes, it does. <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of like this is the sort of associations do derive from the colors. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, um, and then he also recommended purple amethyst, um, which is good, also good for memory. It's good for vision and mental health in general. And finally, fluorite, um, which is. It's actually considered a crystal of the mind, and it's said to improve like mental focus. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's good for your brain. Is Florence the green one, right? Um, it's multicolored, but it has like a a hint of like turquoise, I guess. That's the one that's in our drinking water. Oh, that's fluoride. <laughs> I'm asking, but it's it's actually. it's actually the mineral form of calcium fluoride. Okay. Well, <laughs> then it is. Anyway, the point is. As we've talked about with ASMR, hypnotism, all these different things, they're not directly going to implant language vocab in your brain, but they can possibly help with other things that sort of indirectly help with language learning. And they make your teeth stronger. All right, everyone. Well, this has been fun. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Multilinguish is produced by the content team at Babbel. We are... Thomas Moore Devlin, David Duchin, Steph Koifman, Dylan Lyons, and I'm Jen Jordan. Ruben Vilash makes us sound good. Our logo was designed by Ali Zhao. You can read more about this episode's topic and even more on Babbel Magazine. Just visit babbel.com slash magazine. Say hi on social media by finding us at Babbel USA, all one word. Finally, if you like what you heard, please rate and review this podcast. We really appreciate it. Let's debate about it, guys. Safer wharf pronunciation. You should just mumble every time you have to say it. So that observer wharf hypothesis. Tell me more about that. Sapir wharf hypothesis. I don't trust that. I yeah. I did just say that. That sounds made up.